Welcome everybody to Dine with the Divine, and I'm your host, Ashley. Today we'll be exploring the magical, the mystical, and everything in between. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about a Chinese divination system and compassion personified. So I hope everyone is having a wonderful week, and if you're not, I hope it gets better soon. And today we have a fantastic guest. We have Benabel Wen. So Benabel is the author of Holistic Tarot and the Tao of the Craft. She's also the creator of the Spirit Keepers Tarot, which is absolutely gorgeous. Her forthcoming book is I Ching the Oracle, and it will be released in September of this year. So hi, Benabel. How are you? Hello, hello, Ashley. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm so happy to be here. Yay, I'm so happy you're here. So usually the first thing I always ask people, and you've been doing this for a few years, you have your the Holistic Tarot. I remember when that came out. It's a big, thick book full of so much information. I love it. When did you get into mysticism and all that good stuff? What's your kind of origin story? Origin story. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it's always been part of my life, but it was the Eastern tradition. Mm-hmm. So my mom, my maternal side, they grew up in Taoist mysticism. So this presumption that spirits are always around you, that you have to honor ancestors that are not physically present. This idea that like my concept of reality growing up, there was a huge cognitive dissonance when I then entered school and you're like with white kids and Christians and and atheists. and, And I realized, okay, so not everybody assumes that your dead uncle is around, you know? Yeah. And so I've always had that part of mysticism growing up, the idea of mediumship, shaman, shamanistic travels, and, and all of the altered states of consciousness. And then it wasn't until I was trying to fit in in school in upstate New York that I felt like I had to reject all of that and adopt a more Enlightenment era, Western European style of philosophy and thinking just to try to fit in. And so I think I denied a huge part of who I was for a really long time. And then at some point you grow up and you mature and you don't give a crap what other people think of you. And that's when I realized that, you know, what I had been denying was something that was really much, you know, baked into my DNA and who I was. And the only way to truly be happy and feel fulfilled and, and grounded is to embrace that part of who I was. And so I rediscovered mysticism, I would say in college, in terms of rediscovering Eastern forms of mysticism later on in life. But in terms of tarot and Western forms of occultism, I think I've always been interested in that. I started in junior high, and I thought that was a way for me to scratch that itch without embracing my own culture, which is awful. But this is one of those things, you find a replacement for that thing that you actually want to do. That's my origin story. Not very inspiring. But you know what? I find that a lot of people, we've had several guests who have a similar thing. You always felt this way. I'm the same way. When I was growing up, I was always knew like, okay, this is just, there's ghosts and there's ancestors. And I always felt that way. And then you go to school and people think it's weird. So I felt like when I, I, felt like when I was like in high school, my friends would like tolerate my weirdness. So it was fine. But then I went to college and I wasn't with my home friends. So I was like, I have to be normal. Like I have, to, I, I have to act like everyone else and I have to act like none of this is real. And I did the same thing. I just pushed it all away. And then it'll, and then again, you get older and you're like, why do I give a shit about all these people who don't really care about me that much? This is stupid. So then I was fully in it. <laughs> I jumped back into it. I'm reading, learning to read tarot cards and doing all this kind of stuff and And I think it is hard too when you're like a first generation kid and you don't have like all those people to relate to like other than your own family. You know what I mean? So it's not like you're surrounded by kids who are all like, yeah, yeah, that happens in my house. That happens in my house. A lot of time you might be in a a culture or an area where it isn't a lot of kids that that happens in their house. So you're like, okay, I don't want to bring this up because they're going to think this shit is weird. And we eat this on this day and they're going to think that's weird. Like, so like you... Yeah, you totally like push away. So I get that. There's it happens, but but look at you now. You're writing tons of books like and the thing I like about your work, first of all, I love I love a research project. You extensively research things 
to the point where I'm overwhelmed by how much you're doing. I cannot even believe you've even written so many books yet. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. How do you have time to do anything else? You, it's so well researched, all your books. It's amazing. Do you just like really like research? Cause like I do too, so I'm not, I'm not even being sarcastic. I really admire the fact that you do all this. You know, it's funny, the positives, of course, I love research. I think the the negative side or the overcompensation side, if you really want to try to get into armchair psychology, I think it's almost like you feel this weird overcompensation of having to justify your belief systems, mm. right? Like, oh, look at this academic, look at that academic, look at what other people who are much smarter than I am are saying about this. So I'm not crazy. It's almost like this way of justifying your belief system. So the positive product is a well-researched text, but why you did that sometimes requires self-reflection. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot Oh, that makes so much sense. And again, okay, this may be a little controversial, but I think. Do it. (laughs) Go for it. Oh my God. I was talking to somebody the other day and like part of the reason I even wanted to do like this podcast is because there's like witch talk and all this stuff and nobody says ever like where we where they came up with that there's not a lot of people talking about the history behind it they're just like this is you blow cinnamon at your door for this and which is great and that's awesome don't get me wrong everybody there's tons of knowledgeable people on all these subjects. I'm not saying they're not knowledgeable, but I really like to know where things come from because a lot of things have a practical side to it. A lot of magical practices that we think of every day have a practical side or they have a side that this herb is actually also medicinal or, you know, they say sage um, actually helps kill bacteria in the air. So those kinds of things. I like to know it because I see exactly what you're saying. It's like you want to For people who are like, this is bullshit, you always want to be like, yeah, but look at this and look at that and look at this. And I think I have that problem too. I think I'm like, I want to prove to people that like, this is somewhat legitimate. Look at this reason. So I think it's good. I also understand what you mean by like overcompensating. I do think sometimes it's like a problem that a lot of us have, but I also think that it's good to know. I don't think it's always good to blindly follow stuff. Sometimes because they heard somebody say it and that person has 10,000 followers. So they're like, well, they must be right. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, look it up for yourself. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's free. Google is free on your phone, your tablet or your laptop. So, yeah, I see exactly what you're saying. I think it's good and bad, but don't believe every single thing you see just because someone has a lot of followers. Sometimes people just have a lot of followers because their aesthetic is cute. And don't get me wrong. I love a cute aesthetic. I love a good aesthetic. Oh, my God, right? Me too. I love a good aesthetic. But also, I'm like, "Eh, I don't know this person and I don't know what they're saying. Everybody can say whatever they want. So that's fine. Speaking of cinnamon, yes. I love like, the history of cinnamon is so amazing. You see, like, there's a very universal, un- like, what we believe, how we interpret what cinnamon can do. So before we even get into the traditional Chinese medicine, what you were saying, the medicinal aspects of it, this idea that it wards evil is found in a lot of Western cultures in China. It's found in West Asia. It's found in the Mediterranean. It's found in North Africa. And it's found in Christian mysticism. It's even found in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so because of because uh, cinnamon is part of the holy holy anointing oil that you see in the Old Testament. So it's wow. so fascinating that why do so many cultures just like say cinnamon wards evil? It, it's And cinnamon is part of a lot of different um, religions, exorcistic rituals as well. And it also is in traditional Chinese medicine. It ha- it's a healing tonic. There's so many really cool things about it. And my favorite that I recently learned, it actually helps with dandruff. Oh. So if you put... Because I have dandruff, and I was like, oh my God, it helps with everything. <laughs> Cinnamon is like awesome. But anyway, if you research the medicinal properties of it and the history of it and how it traveled from east to west along the Silk Road, it's just a really cool, I don't know. I, it was just funny that you mentioned cinnamon. It's one of those things that brings many different cultures together. Yes. It can bring world peace. Yes, cinnamon for world peace. Cinnamon for world peace. I love, even like, I love cinnamon. My mom actually, I don't, and again, this is like a random thing, but my mom had this list that somebody had emailed her at some point of things that like cinnamon and honey help. And it's cool. And honestly, whenever I'm sick now, I take a spoonful of cinnamon and honey. And if I have a sore throat, it really does help. Like it helps. 
Yeah. Especially honey. Honey is good for so many things. And it's like the only food that never goes bad, I'm pretty sure. It's like the, the, the like archaeologists uncover like 3,000 year old honey and it's fine. Yeah. It's just like, just they're like, what? we can eat this. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. So we're going to go to our dish of the week because we have a lot to talk about today. So because later on in our story time, we're going to talk about Kuan Yin. So I figured our quote unquote dish isn't really a dish, but it's a tea. It's Kuan Yin's tea. We're going to talk a little bit about her tea. So if you didn't know, she has the tea. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll talk about it later. Don't worry. So Kuan Yin tea or tea Guan Yin is a Chinese oolong tea that grows in the Fujian, Fijian Providence. I apologize. I'm not going to pronounce everything right. I'm going to do my best. Fujian, totally cool. Okay. I don't care. Fujian is fine. Yeah, Fujian is technically Okay. Pronunciation right there. Okay. You know what? I wish I, this is my thing. I have a thing. I wish I knew every language in the world. Number one, I, I hate, and I say on this podcast all the time that I'm pronouncing things wrong. I don't like to pronounce things wrong. I hate it. But there's some languages that the English spelling of it is wrong because, yeah. <laughs> especially, it's like you're yes, especially like Mandarin is one of them. All the, all the English written things for Mandarin are wrong because you're going to pronounce it automatically wrong. It's not how it's pronounced. And it's not fair to Chinese people because every time you say something, it's wrong. And I apologize. Even like Taoism, right? It's T-A-O. Most people say Tao. It's not Tao. It's Tao. So it's like, I apologize in advance. No, you can't apologize. And another funny thing is I don't think I actually get really upset when people get really judgmental about pronunciation because even within the native culture, there's so many different ethnic groups and different dialects and different vernacular. And every vernacular pronounces these words differently. So what we consider quote unquote correct pronunciation is actually a dominant group that has probably subjugated all of the other marginalized groups to say my way of pronunciation is correct if you don't pronounce it this way you are incorrect mm-hmm. and so to acknowledge the many different diversities of vernaculars i just think that we should be more open-minded about pronunciation and then if you're from a di- you're not even from the culture why are you judging how other people pronounce words i don't know that's just my thing i'll get off my soapbox now but i don't think people should be judgmental about judgmental about pronunciation if you try with good faith that's all that's all that matters thank you oh you made me feel better oh oh god so this tea it has a very complex process of making it and it's actually a secret like only the people who make it know how to make it because it's like very special and it's actually known as one of the most expensive teas that you can buy. It's, it's very, very expensive. And the cool thing about the tea is there's two stories that come with it. I'll tell the first story is short because, and the second story is cuter. So we'll tell the short story first. So the first story is a story of Wang. So Wang was a scholar and he accidentally discovered the tea beneath Quan Yin Rock in Xiping. He brought the plant home for cultivation and then he went to go visit the emperor and this is in the emperor's sixth year of his reign and he offered the tea as a gift from his village to the emperor and the emperor was super impressed. So he was like, where'd you get this? And he said, well, I discovered it between a, beneath a Guan Yin rock. So he was like, okay, we're going to call it Quan Yin tea. That's that short story, but that's not as cute as the second one. Okay. So now we're going to tell. Wei's story, because Wei's story is cuter. Okay, so there was this guy named Wei, and he was a poor farmer. He lived in the village. He was just, like, a really, really good dude. So every day he would walk by this temple, and it was, like, dilapidated and old, and obviously people hadn't been going there in a really, really long time, and it made him so sad. It was a temple dedicated to Kuan Yin, and he was like, oh, God, I wish I could, like, clean up this temple. This is so sad. So... After a while, he kept walking by, kept walking by. And he's like, you know what? Let me take a broom to this place. So he he had a broom. So he got a broom and he had some incense. And he's like, I'm going to go in there. He cleaned it up best he could. And he had some incense and he put it in there. And like twice a month, he would go there. He'd clean up. He'd offer his incense to Kuan Yin. Because that's all he had. But he was doing like the best he could here. It was really great. So one night, after a couple months... He had a dream and Kuan Yin came to him in the dream and she's like, listen, Wei, you're doing a great job. There's a temple, there's a cave under the temple and you're going to find a treasure there. 
And he's like, okay. So he woke up the next day on his way to work. He's like, let me go find this cave. He goes and finds this little opening. And what does he find there? He finds a little tea shoot, basically like a little baby tea plant um, in the cave. So he's like, okay, this must be what she's talking about. So he takes out the tea plant. He puts it in his farm and it starts to grow. So he starts making more of these tea plants. Then... He got, you know, the other villagers came and they started to cultivate the tea. They started to make it into tea leaves and everybody loved this tea. So it's going far and wide all over. So he started to make a lot of money, started making a lot of money for the people in the village and everybody started to prosper. So then after that, he had enough money to redo the temple to make it really, really nice. He repaired it. He started going there every day and thanking Kuan Yin and named the tea Kuan Yin Tea because she was the one who gave it to him. And after that, he always had appreciation for going to work. He was never sad. That's part of the story. It was like he never was sad about going to work again because he's like, wow, I've been blessed by this beautiful plant. So that's the story of Wei. And Wei sounds like an awesome person. So we love him. The second story is the one that I grew up with and know. So Fujian, a lot of, if you know Taiwanese history, mm-hmm. at some point, a lot of people from the Fujian province, which is where the Tianguanying tea is from, they immigrated or migrated over to Taiwan, which is where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And so I have Fujianese ancestry in me. And one of the things that we grew in Taiwan, my family grew, was Tianguanying or the Guanyin, Iron Guanyin tea. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought it was really funny that you brought it up and then I'm on the podcast. So we used to grow tea guanyin or uh, iron guanyin tea. Okay. Yes. It's very, it's, I've had it. It's very good. So everybody, I recommend it. It's a very nice tea. Okay. So at this point, I'm going to do my plug and then we'll move on. So if you enjoy this show, subscribe wherever you listen, Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify. We're Dying with the Divine on all those channels. And if you listen on Apple or Spotify, if you don't mean giving us a review, I would always appreciate it. And if you want to follow me on socials, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook at Dime with the Divine, Instagram, Dime with the Divine, and TikTok at Dime with the Divine. I put little clips of the show on there. And if you have any questions or suggestions for episodes, please feel free to email me at dinewithadivinepod at gmail.com. Okay. Yay. So now we have our little tea time where we talk about something educational. Now, disclaimer, I had a very hard time for some reason conceptualizing everything about the I Ching. I was like, we're going to talk about I Ching because this is what your book is coming out about. And I would read and I swear, I don't know why. (laughs) It was just... Hard to understand. There's so much that goes into this. Maybe, probably for you, it's way easier because you wrote a whole book on it. But for me, I was like, under, even just the history, I was like, this is very confusing to me. Oh, <laughs> so- I'm so glad to be here. How can I be of service, actually? I was like, okay, <clears throat> another disclaimer. I really enjoy reading about Chinese history, but there's so many dynasties and there's and I'm terrible at dates. So that is throws me off every time they're like, it's this dynasty, it's this dynasty, and this is the date. I'm like, I can't remember which one came first. No Chinese person can either. I think there's like the 1% of the smart Chinese that know anything about the dynasty. Like You have to memorize it in school, but like how many Americans actually know American history? And it's only like, what, a couple hundred years? Exactly. So we don't know it either. You're like in great company. You're, you're in the company of billions of people, and it's their own history, so... Chill, you're fine. No, I'm like 5,000 year, 5,000 plus years of history is quite difficult to follow. But like, we'll go over the basics to start. So what is the I Ching? So what is it? You've probably seen it before. So the I Ching is usually translated as a book of changes or the classic of changes. And it's an ancient Chinese divination text that's among one of the Chinese classics. So there's five Chinese classics. Don't ask me what the other four of them. Benabel probably knows, not me. So <laughs> not off the top of my head, like Book of Songs, blah, 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 okay. something like that. I was forced to memorize it at some point when I was like 12, <laughs> but it's those days are gone. There's nothing in my brain anymore. It, it li- Do you realize you get dumber? Like you, you actually get dumber as you go. Like when I was smarter at 15, yes. like I knew more at 15. Now I just, I know nothing. <laughs> I think it's like, my theory is like you have so much to know, like including all the basic stuff of your life, like that you have to do every day. And then it's like for me to remember stuff that I learned when I was in high school, it's like if it's not that important or I didn't find it super interesting. So it's originally a, 
Okay, so here's the thing about the I Ching. I said it's a book and it comes from a book. So it literally was a divination manual that originates one in 1000 between 1000 and 750 BC during the Western mm-hmm. BC. Good job. Okay, thank you. During the Western Zhao period. Yes, Zhou Dynasty. Okay. And it was transformed over a course of time with the warring states and the early imperial periods, which are like 500 to 200 BC. And that's when it turned into a more spiritual cosmos kind of thing. And it was written with a series of philosophical, I can't, you know, philosophy stuff, commentaries known as the 10 wings, which I also tried to understand. I was like, this is confusing for me. We'll talk about it later. Um, so, oh, so then, as we said before, it became one of the five classics and that was in the second century BC. And the I Ching has been the subject of scholarly commentary and people have been looking into it for a really, really long time. And then people in the West found out about it. So they started looking into it. If you if you want to know what it looks like, it's a bunch of hexagram, like, so it's like six lines, each one. And the lines are either like full lines or broken lines. And each combination means something different. There's 64 combinations. And there's a book that originally was written to explain what each one means. There's also, before we talk more about it, there's also a little mythological story that goes with the I Ching. Now, there was a cultural hero, and his name is Fuzai. Um, oh, Fushi. Fushi, okay, Fushi. And it says here, either he was a dragon or a snake with a human face. Cool. And he studied the patterns of the sky, and he found that there was like different markings on birds and rocks and animals and the clouds moved differently and the arrangements of the stars were different. So he was like, wow, out of this, I could make some of these trigrams. So these were three lines. He made eight trigrams and each composed of three stacks, solid or broken lines. And they represented yin and yang. You guys know that symbol of everyone knows the yin and yang single, but like the binary things of the universe. And <clears throat> Then the trigrams themselves represented heaven, a lake, fire, thunder, wind, water, a mountain, and earth. And then from these building blocks, he also added other things, talking about kingship, marriage, writing, navigation, agriculture. And these are things that this mythical mythological hero was teaching humans all about these concepts, you know, because he probably knew a lot about them. Then the mythology started to turn around when the emperor was like, okay, the emperor in uh, 1046, like Benabel just said, was like, actually 1046 BCE, this is a long time ago, guys, a long time ago. (laughs) As we said, Chinese history is deep. It's deep, deep, deep. He doubled the trigrams to hexagrams. So now there are six line figures and he had so many different combinations and they were, there were 64 different combinations. And then he had a book. Wait, I forget when they wrote the book, but somebody wrote a book, which each one and defined each one. And then I read in one of these articles that I linked in the show notes, if you want to go in deep and to read it, I think each, each hexagram has two meanings. I think. Uh, multiple well it has two it's double trigrams okay. but it has multiple I mean, it, yeah it has sort of the divinatory meaning okay. but i don't know about two meanings i'm not sure what that i means. may be getting like, confused i'm sorry yes it's kind of, you know how like the, you know how like the tarot you have a lot of correspondences the golden dawn said oh there's these astrological yeah, yeah, yeah. correspondences there's this kabbalistic correspondences and even crowley was like there's these eaching correspondences to the tarot so i think that might be what you're talking about yeah. so over centuries and centuries a lot of different scholars and occultists will be like oh I see X in the I Ching. I see Y in the I Ching. And then all of these really complex correspondence systems were built. Okay. So that might be what you're referring to. Probably. That's probably what I mean. So the thing about the I Ching is that it looks... Okay, I want to ask you, Benabel, is it is the I Ching, do you believe, good for... You know, people argue about like tarot, like, oh, it's not good for fortune telling. You should use this for fortune telling or whatever. How do you feel about the I Ching? Is it good for fortune telling? Is it more good for like meaning? Can you dive deeper into it? Or is it like a standard thing? What do you think? 
I think the best place to start is what is the I Ching. Mm -hmm. And so what we believe, the 64 hexagrams, because you have yin and yang are the fundamental binary, that the, the binary code that the entire universe is programmed with. Mm -hmm. And then you have the trigrams. And then what we have found out now is actually this concept of the three built out of the two. That's our DNA as well. You know, the oh. 64 codons of the DNA and RNA core that is the foundation wow. of all life is very similar to the idea of two to three to eight to 64 that you find in the I Ching. Yes. And so what we believe is that the I Ching itself, the 64 hexagrams, which is are made of all of these lines, this binary code, it's, you know how acupuncture, you have different points and each pulse point mm -hmm. triggers something greater. Mm -hmm. And so this is basically a complete binary code system that represents space time. And space time is always a circle, always a cycle. And then the unit circle is also the sine and cosine, which you remember from, you know, like algebra yeah. back in the day. <laughs> And so this idea of the ups and down waves of life actually equals a unit circle, which means all of life, all of the universe is always a revolution of circles that can be represented by the I Ching. So the I Ching book of map, a book of changes is actually a revolution, a circle, a unit circle, a mandala. And then the mandala has the four gates. So that's what we believe the I Ching is. Therefore, if you want to understand any aspect of life, therefore philosophy, you can go to the I Ching, this sacred text. If you want to do divination, this idea of divination, it's almost, we believe it as a form of science and that it's not that you're so special and magical, you can predict the future. It's that there is like a, there's like a logic of flow, like if-then statements. Mm -hmm. Life is always if-then statements. And if you can calculate that series of algorithms of if-then statements, then technically you know what's coming up ahead. And it looks magical, like you can predict the future. It looks like fortune-telling, but all it is is the ability to calculate many steps ahead, just like what mathematics is. And if you look at the way the hexagrams are built, it's very much mathematical. And so we don't have the same idea of of dividing up intuition and rational logic as you see in the West. That's not really the way we build philosophy. And so even when when Western philosophers and psychologists look at looked at the East, you know, Carl Jung, mm -hmm. Carl Jung, like, we always talk about how he said really wonderful things about the I Ching, but I found one of the quotes that he had, he said, oh, the Chinese aren't really scientific. They mix, like, they, he couldn't process how we conflated science and intuition and how they're like the way we like even the fundamental idea of how you approach science versus intuition logic versus intuition is very different on that fundamental level between eastern and western philosophy but back to what the I Ching is because it is that circle it's basically something that is a universal truth you can go at it for any reason. So if you want to use it for fortune telling based on what I just said, of course you can. If you want to use it to understand your own life or to understand society or to understand governments or to understand politics, then you can also use it for that as well. So that's the reason many different people look at the I Ching and think many different things because it is technically all of the above. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> that was a lot. I'm sorry. No, I love it because... What you just said is so important, too. It's so hard. Like, obviously, like, we live in the United States. I grew up in the United States. And I see, I feel like my magical <laughs> divination, spiritual learning, sometimes, this is why it's good to learn about other cultures. Because sometimes you look at everything so, so one way. But that makes so much sense. You're saying that. The Chinese were like, no, 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 this is all part of life. So this all kind of goes, runs together. But people, other people may be like, no, 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 you can't. Carl Jung saying, well, they're not scientific. But no, they're saying that this is how they've looked at it. They've looked at it saying everything is one thing. And that makes sense. And, it, you know, you always see that, like, kind of joke on the, in the socials that's like, oh, witchcraft is spicy psychology, which is honestly a little bit because sometimes... When I do a tarot card reading for somebody or I'm doing like a, a any other type of spiritual service for somebody and they're telling me about their issue, sometimes it literally is just an outside person. I'm not a therapist, but sometimes it just takes an outside person for them to be, le to be like, no, 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 but this is what you're telling me. You're saying that your boyfriend's cheated on you 17 times and you don't know if he's going to cheat on you again. Should you go back? Well, 
here's the thing. If you go back, you have a chance of being hurt again because he might cheat on you again. And chances are, if he's done it 17 times, probably going to be the 18th. But (laughs) that's completely up to you. It's okay. You do whatever you want. But this tarot card reading is literally, and like I always tell people about tarot, like it's the highest probability of what's probably going to happen. It's not for sure. You can dye your hair blonde tomorrow and your whole life may change. I don't know. But It's true. It it all runs together. People make decisions. People do things. And then we're just telling them like, hey, this is probably what's going to happen to you going down the line. And you're tapping into your own tuition, but you're also tapping into the logic of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If if this guy's cheated on you 17 times, probably going to cheat on you again. This is how that works, unfortunately. So yeah, that makes so much sense. And I think now it's... Maybe, I don't know. But now maybe it's a little different that we can look at other cultures and the way that they look at things and start to not look at it so black and white. And that's why I like things I'm learning. I learned this today. I find that fascinating. I also find it fascinating that they have these lines that all work into like one flow of the universe. That's so cool. (laughs) But isn't that, what if you think about it? Isn't that the internet? If you think about Mm. everything we know about computer programming and this whole virtual reality that has become so many of our actual reality, like the idea of that whole virtual programming, it is all zeros and ones. Everything you see when you open up a website and you see this world on your computer screen, at the end, what is that? That's just zeros and ones. Wow. This is crazy. My mind's being blown. This is so cool. Even letters, I think, is it letters or like, oh, HTM colors? It's like six-bit strings of binary codes. It's So everything is, there's this, even the six-bit string is something that's a fundamental concept. I don't know anything about computer programming, so I'm being, but I do remember the six-bit string being important mm-hmm. in computer programming because I remember reading this, the scholarship of those who are computer engineers that are interested in the I Ching and anyone who's into the into computer science and then they learn about the I Ching, they just go nuts about the I Ching because there's so much crossover. That's so cool. Oh my gosh, my mind's being blown. That, like, our ancestors were so smart. People would be like, oh, they died early because they didn't wash their hands. Yeah, but they knew a lot of other stuff. Like, just because they didn't know germ theory. First of all, a lot of them did. Like, okay, I'm going to go on my quick rant about germs. Number one. Yes, yeah. do it. A lot of cultures did know a lot about germs. Like a lot of yep. a lot of cultures were very clean. They only ate in certain areas. They only pooped in certain areas. They they knew what was going on. So people say a lot of stuff like, "Oh no, 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 back then they weren't clean. They were all full of diseases." They weren't really. And it depends where you were in the world. I'm not going to I'm not going to shit on one part of the world versus the other, but there's a lot of parts of the world that you look at that since the beginning, they were like, oh, no, this is how we eat. and We don't eat. And a lot of the rules around eating and even like a lot of the time in certain Arab countries, especially, you only shake with one hand. And that's because you would wipe yourself with the other. So they had figured out maybe we shouldn't shake hands with the hands that we're wiping ourselves with. Smart. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that happened a long time ago. So our ancestors knew a lot of things, not just magical, mystical things. They figured it out after so many people died 5,000 years ago of this. They're like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't eat that berry. <laughs> like, maybe we should, maybe we should wash our stuff with water. Maybe we should do this and that. Like, they figured it out before we think they did. Even the idea of demons and being possessed with demons, and if, you know, if you look at what herbs and what oils are used in exorcisms, the oil properties, those herbs, the fundamental properties are all antibacterial and antimicrobial. Mm-hmm. Every single one in every single culture. It's go. I challenge someone to find one that isn't. Every single culture who has, oh, this herb is used to exorcise demons. If you look at it, it's antimicrobial. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So they knew something was up. Exactly. And even a lot of magical, mystical practices, a lot of, first of all, those doctors and shaman and things like that they were also the first therapists a lot of people were going to them to talk about their problems a lot of people oh so and so this dude drinks too much so take him to the shaman he is a demon but the shaman was just talking to this dude about his life and sometimes the dude was sad so he talked to him about his sadness and maybe he helped the guy not drink so much maybe he told the community there is a 
Martin Proctel, he is a shaman from, I believe, Guatemala. He talks about, he tells a story about what they would do in that in the village that he worked in when somebody was seen as having a drinking problem. But they didn't call it like a drinking problem, he said. We said that this person had like a perpetual sadness problem. And we all need to rally around this person and talk to them and figure out why they're sad. And that was literally the re- like that's psychology basically, except he's not a licensed therapist, but that's what he was doing. He's saying we all have to rally around this person and see why they're so sad. See what's wrong. And once you would see what's wrong with the person and you nurture, he's like, we don't put them away. We don't take them to a rehab. We all rally around them to try to figure out how we can help them, how we can nurture them, how we can spend time with this person. Obviously, I know that wouldn't work for everybody. I'm just making an example that this is something that people have been doing for thousands of years, realizing like, oh, there are certain things that Obviously, sometimes it's a chemical imbalance. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about the emotional part of it. Sometimes there are things that we can help or solve, even in some cases, with community. So that's what the shaman or the priest or the holy person in that community did. They were just the therapist for everybody. Okay, just wanted to put that out there. Yeah, Yeah. one aspect to that, though, one thing I do know, um, a a shamanistic practice in southern Taiwan, so I just want to be specific so that it it kind of is rooted in the particular practice that I am personally aware Mm -hmm. of. So this is even in the Qing dynasty, as late as the late 1800s, early 1900s. So if somebody had an alcohol problem, someone who was an alcoholic, the belief was there was a negative or a malefic demonic attachment to them. <laughs> and one of the ways that they, the shaman would say to get rid of the, sh- the attachment, the malefic attachment, is certain people in the community... And usually they were better by like, they were socially more virtuous type people. You need to surround them with certain types of people because the demon was scared of those types of people. And so if you surrounded them constantly with certain types of people, the demon would would not be, would be too afraid to stay and would leave them. And so if you process the vocabulary that's being used, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's this idea of having like exactly, it parallels exactly what you were just saying from a different part of the world. Mm-hmm. The idea of the community and maybe they don't feel attached to certain like celebrated members of community. And so if they feel that they socially belong to certain celebrated members of community, that disincentivizes the alcoholism. Yeah. Now, even the idea of chemical imbalance, if you think about the idea of, oh, there's a demon attached to you, or it's not them who, this is not really them. It's a demon that's possessing how they are behaving. Mm -hmm. That's chemical imbalance in neurotransmitters 101. There you go. That's it. And it's the same thing as how you're... Your parent may have told you, oh, I don't like you hanging out with that person. They hang out with the wrong crowd. Mm-hmm. That's literally exactly what you just said. It's, it's hilarious, just... right? Yeah, that's like literally what the shaman just yeah. said. It's what your parents have been telling you all along. Hilarious. I don't like that girl. You She's wrong. Yeah, exactly. You need to be about brown people who do better things. You need to hang out with your friends who study. I know everybody has heard that before. Oh, I, I like her. She always gets good grades. You should be better friends with her. Exactly. That's what that's what your Taiwanese shaman was trying to tell you. Yeah. So let's see. What else were we going to say about the I Ching? I Ching. I'm sorry. It says I Ching. Again, it's I Ching. I Ching. Um, I mean, if I'm speaking English, I say yin, I say yang, mm-hmm. but in Chinese, it's yin yang. Oh, I didn't know. But that. I'm not gonna like switch to Mandarin every time. I'm not gonna be like, oh, and so this is yin yang <laughs> philosophy. Like it's like that's just right. And so I'll just be like, oh, it's yin and yang philosophy. Yeah. You're speaking a different language now. Just I don't know. It's my my piece. No, I totally love that. Okay, and then okay, the ten wings. So the ten wings. Are a tax okay? All right. Okay. Yeah. You, I'm just gonna let you take the reins if you <laughs> tell me what this is. So this is legend because it, we're going back to 1046 BC. King Wen was imprisoned by the. There was a dominant dynasty, and his his clan wanted to overthrow that dynasty, believing that that dynasty was doing bad by the people. And then that dynasty's emperor imprisoned King Wen because he was considered a rebel and he was threatening his reign. So while in prison, you know how prison has those straws? So yarrow stalks, mm-hmm. this is why we have the concept of yarrow stock divination. So he used the straws and then he used his understanding of the eight trigrams, which came from Fuxi. And so that was already baked into the understanding of culture and mysticism. So he used the eight trigrams and then he stacked them. And then just math, if you stack the eight, the permutations of eight creates 64 tri- hexagrams. 
And then he used that to, and then he named every one of those 64 hexagrams. And he believed that he could use it to divine that there would be the fall of the Shang dynasty and the rise of the Zhou dynasty. And so the origins of the I Ching actually is the first idea, first principle of the mandate of heaven, where heaven will dictate who, you know, who has the right to rule. And so the mandate of heaven was born out of the I Ching or that story of the I Ching and this battle of Muya, this battle that happened during this period of time. So all of it is connected. And then so he created the 64 hexagrams and then he named the 64. And then he used that to divine the fall of one dynasty and the rise of another. And so actually divination is the origins of the I Ching, not necessarily philosophy, unless you call that political philosophy. Is it political philosophy or is it divination or is it both? And then later, his son, the Duke of Zhou, so King Wen's son, then decided to go. And you know how if you have 60, what was it, 384 lines of code? Because if you do 64 times 6. So for every single line, the Duke of Zhou then wrote like a little verse, like a prophetic oracle verse for each and every single one of those lines. And then that itself became the Zoe, the Book of Changes. Later on, uh, I think about 500 years later, we say Confucius did it, but probably Confucian scholars and not Confucius himself. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But allegedly, Confucius then writes the Ten Wings, and the Ten Wings explains these really cryptic, difficult-to-understand verses, because nobody could understand these verses. So the Ten Wings explains the verses, and because the verses themselves are so hard to understand, how do you divine with something you don't understand? Therefore, a lot of people rely heavily on the Ten Wings to interpret what these 64 hexagrams mean. So today, our understanding of these 64 hexagrams, what does this, you know, completely objective six, you know, six patterns of lines mean? Well, we use the Ten Wings to help us understand the interpretation. So that's, and then now the Ten Wings plus that original Zoe together is what we call the Book of Changes. Okay. Yay. Now we know. Because I was like, I, yeah. all these books, I was like, I'm getting confused. What does this one mean now? I was like, so yay. Now we understand. Okay. So it was cryptic texts that were then written out. Confucius was busy. He had did a lot. <laughs> I think either Confucius was busy or he had a lot of followers. One or the other. You decide. Confucius was like the, like Deepak Chopra of his time. He was just like... <laughs> He was spitting out books, he was spitting out rules, he was spitting out all sorts of stuff, and everybody's like, this is a good idea, this guy, he's got it. He was busy. It was hilarious, and like, you think, he was fatherless, and so like, he grew up with, I think his mom was widowed or something, Mm. and so, you know, if you think about that time and place, the society that you were in, to grow up in a single family home, that must do something to your psyche, what do you do? You overcompensate. And I just think it's hilarious, like, you can like armchair diagnosed everybody in history like you could you create a whole philosophical system because you're like man right. it really sucked having to grow up with a single parent i mean it makes sense confucius we we like you 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 had some good ideas yeah, yeah. you had to overcompensate exactly it's, it's fine we exactly we we love you you're doing great the each again if you want to know more betterbell's book's coming out please read it because that way you'll know better than my explanation, and obviously she's very knowledgeable because she wrote a whole book about it. So she can explain everything you need to know. Your explanation was awesome. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> oh, so now we're going to get to our story time. And our story time today, we're going to talk about, we have been a minute since we've done like a deity story time, so I'm like happy. So we're going to do Kuan Yin today. Yay! Now, you've seen Kuan Yin before. You ever seen that statue and she's got long robes and it looks like she has, it looks like a box shaped hat. You've seen it. I promise. I'm going to put a picture on the blog. You'll be like, yes, I've seen the statue before. That's Kuan Yin. She is, okay. So to start with Kuan Yin, we have to get down some definitions. Okay. Let's start at the beginning. Kuan Yin is a, considered a bodhisattva. So what's a bodhisattva? You're like, I don't know what that is. No problem. I'm going to tell you. So a bodhisattva is a lover of enlightenment and is literally an enlightenment hero or heroine. They have usually reached a, a level of spiritual enlightenment, permitting them to break cycles of incarnation but then resolves to transform the entire universe into a realm of abundance, peace, happiness for all. And because they're pure of soul and they have goodness and love, they postpone their own salvation so that they can help other people. 
so, okay, we start with Buddha. Everybody remember Buddha? Yeah, he's that guy. And he was sitting under trees and he was thinking all the time. And that's Buddha. He got to a place. And one day we're going to have a whole episode about Buddha because it's very interesting. He got to a place in his life where he reached ultimate happiness. And he was like, I'm good right here. This is what we call nirvana. He was in a place that he didn't suffer. He wasn't desiring anything. He didn't need anything. He was what he said, broken away from like the cycle of karma, which would bring him back. So instead of reincarnating again, the whole point of reincarnating is like, you haven't learned your lesson. Basically, that's the theory. You reincarnate again and again and again so you can figure out what you need to learn about life and get to this nirvana point. This is, this is like a Buddhist thing. I'm not explaining it the way Buddhists would. This is the lay people. You are. You're, you're good. Okay. You're so okay. Good. <laughs> I was like, this is the lay person, non-Buddhist explanation. But once you get to that point where you're good and you're like, oh, I get it now and I'm, I don't want for anything. I'm happy. I'm content. I'm good. Then you don't have to reincarnate. You just die and it's fine. Your soul goes wherever it goes. So bodhisattvas, like I said, they get to nirvana, but then they're like, you know what? We're going to stay on earth because we want to help other people get to nirvana. Very, very noble thing to do. So one of the first bodhisattvas that we know of is Avalokiteshvara. Avalokiteshvara. Yes, that's the one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. He's one of the first ones. He's the Bodhisattva of compassion. And his name literally means the one who responds to the cries of the world. Also, he's also called the Lord of six syllables because there's literally a six syllable. I'll put it in the show notes. Perfect. Thank you. Because I was like, damn, I didn't write my notes. Yes. You say that and it brings him forth to help you with protection. And he helps, you know, calm you and comfort you. He's really, really cool. So he was one of the first ones in this book called the Lotus Sutra, which is one of the first Buddhist texts. Now, it's also one of the first Buddhist texts that was then translated into uh, Mandarin. I'm assuming it's Mandarin. I hate when it just says Chinese because I know there's like more, but I'm assuming it's Mandarin that was uh, translated into. So after it was translated, the translation of his name was Quan Yin, but it ended, everyone ended up shortening it to Quan Yin. And at first, when he was depicted in Chinese Buddhism, he was depicted as androgynous or just like a very like feminine man. But at some point in the 10th century, things started to change and his image started to be one of a woman. And that's what they would call then Quan Yin. And that's for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons they say is because of the Silk Road, there's a lot of tales coming from the West of uh, Mother Mary of Christ and Mary Magdalene, uh, Isis, a lot of these very motherly uh, goddesses. And then also there is a Taoist goddess named Miao Shan. And she also has very similar attributes to Kuan Yin. So that's some of the reason people think that Kuan Yin ended up changing from this very graceful, beautiful man to a female character. Some things you need to know about Kuan Yin. First of all, she's super, super cool. She's very, she's venerated as an Eastern Asian folk goddess and she transcends religious and cultural boundaries. Kuan Yin is in a lot of different a lot of different countries and cultures around Asia. It's not just a Chinese deity. And also it goes along more with, I noticed that she transcends religious, which she does, but also it does go along with Buddhism. And we talked about this in a previous episode a little bit. The cool thing about Buddhism is that Buddhism traveled from India where it started, where it wasn't really like picking up the pace of popularity because they were like, we already have a major religion here. We don't need another one. And it went to the East and then every country and culture and region ended up putting it in their own like folk religion. So they have different deities that go in their Buddhism. And Buddha was cool because he's like, Buddhism is like glasses, but the kind of glasses that you can snap on those other frames because it's like, they were like, he's like, I don't know if there's a God, maybe, maybe not. You guys decide. I don't really care about that. I care about everybody getting to a place of peace. So everyone's like, cool, we're going to add our own folk religion into Buddhism. So 
Tibetan Buddhism is different from Chinese Buddhism, which is different from Japanese Buddhism, which is different from Buddhism in like Southeast Asia and like the island countries, like in like Malaysia, it's different everywhere. But in China, China is where the Kuan Yin character started, but then she migrated around because there are different goddesses in those other regions, let's say Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, there are different goddesses there that they were like, wow, she's like this goddess. Okay, we're going to take her on. Like <laughs> she just it became popular for everybody. Plus her image of being this very beautiful goddess that's just floating around and is literally purely just mercy and compassion is something that obviously attracts people. She's not judging you. She's not doing all this. She's just like, no, I'm just here to try to make people happy and make you feel good and forgiveness. Everyone can use that. She's recently become the goddess of air travel. I read that. I was like, interesting. Maybe because she's always floating. I always see her floating. <laughs> oh no. Oh, she's related to air and water. That might be, you know how we, the one who perceives sound, sound waves travel through air and water. That's true. And so she's often associated with air and water. Makes sense. Okay. That's a much better reason than I thought. I was like, well, she's floating. No, that makes total sense. <laughs> I think that makes sense too. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit more literal. Yeah. She's really good with protecting women, children, animals. Um, she blesses people with health and fertility. She protects in all realms. So in the realm of the living and in the realm of the dead. She's also a goddess, like we we're talking about I Ching. She's also a goddess of divination. So she's big there. So in some stories, she's said to have a thousand eyes and a thousand arms. And that's so she can comfort more people and see where people need help. That's how sweet she is. She's like, I need to see everybody. <laughs> she's doing great. She has shrines on all of China's nine sacred mountains. So there's four Buddhist sacred mountains and five Taoist sacred mountains. And she has a primary shrine on Putoshan, which is a mountainous island, which is entirely dedicated just to her. It had hundreds of thousands, actually, of monks and devotees lived on this island, and they were dedicated to Kuan Yin. It was sacked during the Cultural Revolution, but since then, they've reopened some, they've rebuilt some places. Her sacred days are on the 1st and 15th of every month. And the 19th day, okay, so there, here we go. The 19th day of the second Chinese month is Kuan Yin's birthday. The 19th day of the sixth Chinese month com commemorates when Kuan Yin became a Buddha. And the 19th day of the ninth month is when she wore her sacred pearls. Cool. She has sacred pearls, just so you guys know. And <laughs> she is a vegetarian, so most of her devotees don't eat meat and then, well they don't offer her meat obviously and some of her devotees don't eat meat and that makes sense because there's a lot of areas of china where people are purely vegetarian and a lot of buddhists are vegetarians so makes sense yeah so that's kuan yin what i've got on her that was fantastic yeah, <laughs> yeah she's i've in my kind of in my practice i've gotten to work with kuan yin a little bit and she's very, like, literally the way that you read about her, all this grace and beauty, and not just beauty because she's pretty, but beauty from, like, you can feel the radiation of her, like, love towards everyone. What I think about it is you never read anywhere that she's, like, a judgmental goddess and she's telling people, don't do this. Everything she does, everything she stands for is helping people get to that place because she's a bodhisattva so that's her whole job and all her flowing robes and being beautiful is just a plus for her like she's like i'm really pretty and i wear really nice clothes but i'm also just like a wonderful goddess so that's my experience with kuan yin do you that's one of the things i think i love about her story or her mythology is that baked into it is this idea of non-judgmentalness when it's born during a culture and society that was heavily judgmental, heavily classist, heavily about hierarchy. And so if you understand that context, like how radical the idea was, was pretty insane. But 
you can be even your karma. You can be a you can be a murderer. You can be a prisoner, and I will still come to you. You can have done anything. I don't care what you've done in your past. I don't care what type of personality you have. I don't care what your social class is. I don't care what your gender is. I will come to you if you need help. As long as you need help, that's the only condition is that you need help. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really radical. Even today, if you think about it, there's this idea, oh, well, you have to do this and you have to make sure you do this right offering and this ritual and for this particular god or goddess to come, or or you have to be a certain way. You can have, you know, there are certain parameters to being a priest or priestess of particular gods and goddesses, but that's not part of Kuan Yin's lore. Kuan Yin's lore is anybody can be a priest or priestess of her. Yes, yes. That's like... It's so neat. And then when I was reading about all these, about the island that she like, it was literally just people, again, it wasn't a big thing where these people had to go through 17 different types of initiations. I mean, if they didn't want to, if they were Taoist or Buddhist and they wanted to do that, that's fine. But people would just go there to just be like, nah, I'm just here to talk about how great Kuan Yin is and give her offerings. And people like, okay, cool. Like, come on. And that's like, like Benabelle said, that's literally who she is. She's like, oh, you need help? You you want to offer me something? Great. I'm here. I'll be there in a minute. Just, you know, call me, beat me if you want to reach me. That's Kuan Yin. Yeah. <laughs> She's great. And we love Kuan Yin. Again, I'm going to put pictures in show notes. You're going to see the picture and be like, yes, I've seen her. You might say, I've never seen her. Yes, you have. I promise you have. Everyone's seen this statue. I can see it right now in my head. People have it in their gardens. People have it. You've seen it before. It's everywhere. Also, I live like in an area next to a, a big Chinese population. Maybe that's why I've, maybe that's, maybe that's why I'm like, I've seen it before because I, where I live, I don't know. <laughs> like, so it doesn't matter. You've seen it and you'll see it again. Okay. So we talked about Kuan Yin. Yay. We talked about the I Ching and this brings us to the end of our show. And Benabelle, thank you so, so much for being here. I appreciate Thank you. Yeah. And so do you want to tell people where you want to be found on the internet and anything else you have coming up? Well, I'm on Instagram the most, although nothing there is educational or of substance. If you want to know what I had for lunch, you know, that's where you go. It's really not that eventful, but that is where I am the most. I enjoy seeing all the different things you cook because I'm like, "Mm," every time you cook something, I'm like, "Mm, that looks good. (laughs) Oh, thank you. And YouTube. YouTube is a little bit slightly more educational and more substantive because you have to, it's a long form. So I'll try to do more substantive content on my YouTube channel. So those are the two places you can find me or my website, benabellewen.com. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And like I said at the beginning, Benabelle Wen has a bunch of, well, she has a holistic tarot. If you need, if you're like, I want an encyclopedia about tarot buy it because that's honestly what it is it's amazing she has a spirit keepers tarot that she's coming out with it didn't come it didn't come out yet though right oh, oh no no it's currently out oh, so if you okay. want to buy right now it's the third i'm already on to the third edition oh, that's it's the it revelation full color edition the second printing of that so we currently have a bunch of inventory so if you'd like to buy a tarot deck that's one place to go my website and did you and you did all the illustrations right Yes, I hand drew it. It began as black and white pen and ink line drawing. So I hand drew it. And that was the first edition. It was just a literal scan of the original black and white hand drawings. And then during the quarantine, I decided, you know, know, everybody shut down. No one had work. No one had anything. And so I was like, oh, let me just teach myself graphic design and, and, and digital painting. So then I was able to transform it into full color by using digital painting techniques. So that's why the current edition is in full color. But yeah, it's 100% done by me. It's, it's all me. If you've never seen Benabelle's illustrations, please go look because they're so detailed. They're so good. It's actually Aww. ridiculous. Every time I see I'm like, damn. Like, it's really, really, really good. Her illustrations are fantastic. And the fact, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to go too crazy, but it's just so good. And it's so detailed. That's what I love it. You have like one card where it's a woman standing in front of like a long corridor and you can see all the edges of the corridor and like the columns. I'm like, this is nuts, but it's so, so good. So yeah, that's, that's incredible. That's what she's got going on. And again, thank you so much for being here and spending time. 
And everybody, thank you guys too for spending time with us this week. Again, we're Dying with the Divine. You can follow us on whatever app you're listening, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, blah, 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 whatever. There's tons of them. Overcast, I think, and all the others. And if you want to give us a rating, like I said, I really appreciate it on Apple or Spotify, or you can go on the website and do it, which I super appreciate. You can follow me on the socials, Dying with the Divine, Instagram, Dying with the Divine on Facebook and TikTok. And if you want to follow me, Ashley, I'm Sankofa HS. That's S-A-N-K-O-F-A-H-S on Instagram. And I'm Sankofa Healing Sanctuary on Facebook. And thank you so much for being here. And I hope you all have a wonderful week. And I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.